0: all right hey porch folks good to be back with you today um if you're watching this on sunday morning uh hopefully we'll see you in a few minutes down at the water at marina green Um, bring a chair blanket and a sandwich or whatever or um maybe peter and fanny you guys can bring some of those things you ate last time but bring enough for everybody just kidding everybody was talking about that we all want to figure out what that was and eat it um, if you're watching this after uh, Sunday, it's too bad you missed your chance and we had a lot of fun without you. All right, um, grab your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 9. We are finally moving from chapter 8 to chapter 9 um, after, I don't know, what was it, like a year and a half in chapter 8, it felt like, um, you know, going through verse by verse, Um uh, but this is one of the reasons I love, this passage is one of the reasons I love going through books the way we've done it. We just go through verse by verse. You know, we did First John together as a core team, and um, at the Sunday morning services, uh, at the 9 a.m. services, we did Colossians and Jonah and some other ones. Um, but going through like this forces us to tackle the passages that we wouldn't normally just pick out of a passage and say, pick out of a book and say, I'm going to do that for my sermon, right? Um, it forces us to kind of tackle the more obscure parts. And, uh, I think this passage is one of those more obscure parts of scripture that not a lot of sermons are taught on. Um, I have a collection of sermons in my Bible software, you know, and, you know, a lot of the great preachers from time, like, you know, church history, uh, John Chrysostom and Augustine and, um, guys like even guys at you know, origin stuff like that. Um, then later guys like Luther and Calvin and modern guys like Tim Keller and John Piper and stuff and Spurgeon from the 1800s Victorian era. And I went through my sermon libraries, right. And I looked and, um, I think there was only one sermon that I could find that was taught on this passage. And it was only kind of taught on this passage, right? This isn't a, this isn't a famous passage necessarily. Um, Uh, but going through verse by verse the way we do forces us to tackle these things and ask the hard questions even of these more obscure passages. Now, um, we're reading the book of Luke, and in the book of Luke, as I've said like a hundred, two hundred thousand times, our aim in reading the book of Luke is to answer the question that Luke keeps bringing up. Who is this man, right? Who is Jesus? Who does he claim to be um, in the Gospels? And we want to take our like baggage that we've placed on Jesus and set it aside, and we want to see who He really is, um, find out who He really is in this book. But there's a side effect of that. As we're doing that, as we're reading about who Jesus is, we can't help but at the same time learn a lot about who we are, right? And John Calvin, um, I just mentioned him, the um, the reformer from um, you know the 1500s. Uh, he said this. Um, he wrote a book. It was called the Institutes of the Christian Religion. And originally it was just sort of a, here's what we reformers, you know, the Reformation guys, here's what we believe. And it was a small booklet. And by the end of his life, he kept adding and adding, and it's this two volume um, master work. And this is how he opens it up. He says this, um, first, you know, it's the first, literally the first sentence of the Institutes. Nearly all the wisdom that we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom consists of two parts, the knowledge of God, and of ourselves, what he means by that, and he goes on, and he sort of expands, but what what he says he goes on to say to talk about now when we're when we're learning, do we start by learning about ourselves and then learn about God, or do we start learning about God and then learn about ourselves? But the two are intrinsically linked that even answering that question is hard: where do we start with ourselves or God, because every time we learn something about God it teaches us about ourselves. And every time we learn more about ourselves, it teaches us about the God who, um, who created us. And so in this sermon, um, and in this text right here, we're, we're, um, well, I'll set the context, I guess. In the last section we've been reading about who Jesus is and that whole section, right? There were four parts to this, the power of Jesus. There was calming the sea and we saw that he has power over nature. There was the, the casting out the demon, the legion of demons from that guy across the Sea of Galilee. And we saw his power over the supernatural. Then he healed the unnamed woman, and we saw his power over uh, sickness and disease. And then he um, raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, and we saw his power over even death itself. And today, so we've learned about God. We've learned about Jesus. Today, what we're going to see is how that power the power that we've read about in these four sections, how that plays into who we are. We're going to learn about ourselves by learning about Jesus. And so we're going to see what it means to be um, on the side of this king, on the side of King Jesus. What does it mean to be on his team, right? And so we're going to be, that's not Luke. Here we go. We're going to be in Luke uh, chapter nine, and we're going to read the first nine verses here. So let's start in uh, verse one. Let's see. And he called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority over all demons uh, to cure and to cure diseases. So he calls the 12 together. Now, we're about halfway point at this juncture, right? We're about halfway through Jesus's three and a half, almost four year ministry. And up to this point, he has spent almost all of his time in the region of Galilee, which was like the northern region of Israel. But I always say this, like in in America, we would think of this as like the deep south, right? Where the, the um, you know, the rednecks or whatever live, right? Us sophisticated San Franciscans, we look down on Alabama or whatever. That's how people in Jerusalem looked at Galilee. And so he spent, it's interesting, he didn't start his ministry in Jerusalem. He started in Galilee. And this ministry in the area of Galilee is kind of coming to a close now. And so what he does is he gets his 12... Um, he gets the twelve disciples together. remember a lot of these disciples had families. we know Peter had a family, they had jobs they were fishermen they you know they they were not they were with each other a lot, but they weren't with each other twenty four seven for three and a half years right so he gets the whole gang together they were probably scattered around their homes in the region and he gives them um, or he sends them he's going to send them on this mission, but he'd be a terrible leader wouldn't he if he sent them out unprepared or unequipped it's like a um A coach who doesn't get his team ready uh, for the game coming up. He doesn't know what the other team's going to do. He'd be a terrible coach. Jesus is the same way, right, as a teacher. So he gives them two things. The first is power. He gives them power over, and it says, demons and diseases. Now, remember that our four sections they showed us that Jesus was God right he has power over nature supernatural disease and death and now what he's doing is Luke is very deliberately showing us Luke even skips a couple of parts that the other gospels put in there where Jesus goes back to his hometown in Nazareth and some things he skips those parts to to really make this theological point all of that power that Jesus has now he's he's entrusting to, um, to his disciples. And in Matthew 10, he even adds in Matthew 10, 8, the other, the parallel passage of this, um, story, um, Jesus even adds that they have power over death itself. Right. And so, um, what does it mean then that Jesus gives them power? Well, power is what it's the ability to do something. He specifically gives them. He specifically gives them the ability to heal diseases. He gives them the ability to to tell these demons to pound sand and to get lost, right? These are the things, these things, they couldn't do them up to this moment, right? Up to this moment, they would stand there and Jesus would heal somebody. Jesus would cast out a demon and everybody would go, Ooh, ah, you know, and they were amazed. And now he's saying, look, you guys have this ability as well. Um, but having the ability doesn't matter if you don't have the right to do something. And that's why he gives them the second thing. He gives them power and he gives them authority. So, I saw a, I watch a lot of, uh, you know, YouTube clips in the middle of the night or whatever, something on Reddit, or I don't remember where I saw it. But um, there was a a dude who went into a grocery store recently without a mask. You've probably seen these videos, right? The the Karen videos, but this one was a guy. And he goes into the, the grocery store and he's shouting about his rights and whatever. I think it was in Canada, though. But anyway, he gets kicked out of the grocery store for uh refusing to wear a mask and it was a whole thing he made a whole scene and what was he buying he was just buying soap i think it was um anyway so uh he refuses to leave the grocery store and the manager comes over and as the guy's kind of not really leaving he puts his hand on his back and kind of says dude you need to go he doesn't really push him he doesn't punch him nothing so then this guy goes ballistic screaming about i've been assaulted and all this stuff you know and they get out into the parking lot and he's yelling at the manager i'm placing you i'm placing you under citizen's arrest you are in my custody and you know the police were called it was a whole thing so the cops show up right now what do the cops do They go to the guy who refused to wear a mask and they throw him in cuffs that, you know, they put him in cuffs and they throw him in the back seat of, uh, the patrol car. And the guy's screaming the whole time while he's in cuffs, getting dragged away. Don't arrest me. I've placed this man under citizen's arrest. And I love this cop's response. I don't remember exactly, but it was basically like, yeah, I don't care. (laughs) Right. What happened there? Well, this guy, uh, did he have the authority to arrest the store manager for basically bumping into him. No, right? He didn't he didn't have any real authority. Who had the authority it was the police. And so when the police showed up, they had the ability and the authority and they threw this guy in cuffs and they dragged him off to jail. I didn't, didn't ever see what happened. But um, Jesus didn't just send the disciples out uh, to citizens arrest demons and citizens arrest diseases, right? before he sent them out, he slapped a deputy's badge on them. And he said, you guys now have the ability, you have the training, and now you have the authority under uh, under me to go out and to do these things. Um, but do you see what Luke is showing us about Jesus? Jesus is the ultimate authority, right? He, he's to the point where he can deputize people. He's the sheriff, right? He's the one with the, uh, the ultimate authority. And so he sends them out um, with Uh, well, another just sort of side note is uh, one of the other gospels points out to, and I'm not going to get, this could be a whole sermon, but, um, he sends them out two by two. So he sends them out in teams of two and that's a huge theme, right? Paul always took somebody with him. So, you know, in, in ministry, it's always good to not be alone, right? So, but verse two, look at this. So he sends these guys out two by two and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So he, he sends them out, um, the Greek word for sent out is like this This family of words that we get the word apostle from. So you, you've you heard this word apostle. Um, a lot of people sort of abuse this word now. You'll see a church van driving and it says, you know, the holy church of whatever led by an apostle something. Some guy calls himself an apostle, you know. Anyway, in, it's just kind of silly. But in, in Greek and in theology, right, we sort of separate. There's two kinds of apostles, I guess. Um, there were the original you know, 12 apostles. And we, we call those like the big A apostles, right? And those were the guys who founded the church. And then a couple of guys like Saul or Paul, you know, was added and Barnabas, you know, Barnabas, I think was called an apostle at one point. So there were a few other people. Oh, James, the brother of Jesus. These guys were apostles as well. So there was this group of probably about 20 guys. I don't know who were sort of the bedrock, the foundation of the church. And they were sent out on this mission to get things started. But then also there's this idea of just anybody who's sent by Jesus is a little A apostle, right? So the big A is the founder of the, the, the foundation stones of the church. And the little A is everybody else who's also sent on this mission. And so um, these guys, though, are this is the original. This is the original mission. This is the big A apostle mission, right? And there's the twofold mission that Jesus gives them. The first part is um, to proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, we've talked about this a bunch. What does it mean, the kingdom of God? And how we've reduced, especially in the West, we've reduced salvation to a very individualistic paradigm. And it's uh, about saving Jesus, saving me from the penalty or the wrath of God, saving me from my sins. Um, it's very individualistic. But the way that the gospel writers especially um portray the the gospel story is they talk about the kingdom of god that jesus isn't just coming to save you from the penalty of sin although he does that and that's a major part of it but he does more than that he's come to establish his kingdom where he is lord and things are put back the way that they are supposed to be and his people serve and glorify him and the whole idea is his kingdom is like a new and a better eden Um, where in Eden, remember, we rejected his lordship, and we told him, I want to be the boss. And now he's come back to say, no, 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 I'm the Lord, and this is my kingdom. And so another name for this story, the story of the kingdom of God, right, is the gospel, which is a Greek word, right, euangelion. It means the good news. And actually, this is, Luke uses these interchangeably, right? And he actually says that in verse 6. He calls this, you know, he says they go out and they preach the gospel. We'll get to that in a second. Um, So the first part of their ministry, right, is to proclaim Uh, the kingdom of God. The second part of their ministry, though, is to heal people, to alleviate suffering and to address people's real actual needs. And in doing this, what they're doing is they're giving people glimpses of the kingdom of God. They're giving people glimpses of the way that it's supposed to be because sin has broken the world and disease has entered the world and it's not supposed to be like this the world is not supposed to be broken and so by alleviating this suffering they're giving people sort of glimpses of what eternity will look like right what the kingdom of god is where where love reigns and rules and things are uh back the way they're supposed to be now i often see in church um churches and groups of Christians and people kind of overemphasize one of these two missions that Jesus sends his people on. So more theologically, and I'm being very broad here with these strokes, so don't don't get mad and send me emails, but more theologically conservative churches uh, tend to proclaim the gospel, but, you know, we don't want to get bogged down in all that worldly stuff, right? That's sort of a distraction. And we focus a lot on the minute points of theology and we read calvin's institutes and sermons and stuff like that and uh, we focus on eternity right in the theology and then more theologically liberal churches uh, will flip that and they'll focus a lot on alleviating suffering and help people in the here and now but we're just going to leave the gospel over there right we don't need to get bogged down in this heaven and hell and all this stuff and you know jesus is just a good example and you that, that sort of stuff and you know, a lot of that is baloney, but the idea is, um, look at the mission that Jesus gives his disciples. He says, proclaim the kingdom, be true in what you say and really be bold in the way you proclaim the gospel and, um, in your theology and all that, but at the same time, alleviate suffering, right? And, uh, you, you, and give people glimpses of the kingdom and a biblically faithful church is going to do both of these. And they're going to do both of these really well. Okay, so um, he sends them out on this mission, and then um, in that sending, this twofold mission to proclaim and to alleviate suffering and to heal and cast out demons and all that, he gives them a couple, you know, a few more instructions as well. Verse 3, and he said to them, Take nothing uh, for your journey, no staff or bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. So, basically his first, his instructions here are, and as you go, right, travel light. That's what he says. Now, these are not, uh, this is why studying the Bible and hermeneutics is important, right? These are not universal principles. Um, in this case and in this specific mission where Jesus sent out these specific 12 guys in this area in Galilee to this culture, Jesus told them, look, I want you guys to just, I want you to travel light. The idea is, and this is the important principle, is trust God as you go. Now, there isn't a universal call uh, on all believers and missionaries not to fundraise or don't bring a walking stick or cane. You know, you're in a motorcycle accident and you need a cane, but Jesus says don't take your walking stick, which we'll get into in a sec. Um, But, you know it's not a universal principle. Paul seemed to travel with a bunch of stuff and he had books and some other supplies and he raised money and it was supported by churches. Uh, There's a lot of ways to trust God as you're doing the mission of God, right? So I don't want to over, I don't want to get too much into this, but I also want to just briefly mention there's a little bit of a a hiccup here because when we read over in Mark uh, chapter six, verse eight, it says this, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money, Uh, no money in their belts. So do you see the problem? Mark says, um, uh, don't take anything uh, except a staff. And then Luke and Matthew both say, don't take a staff, right? So there's this, I don't know, I don't wanna say contradiction, but it's odd, right? So, what's going on here? I'm just going to really quickly give you a couple of options and then say that it's not really that important. The first option is they could be talking about two different staffs. So, people would carry like a walking stick that helps them walk. People would also carry around these sort of club things for protection. And Jesus might be saying, trust God for your protection, right? So, you don't need, in one instance, he's saying, don't, you don't need a club. But in another instance, he's saying, yeah, you know, take this, you're going to be doing a lot of walking, right? And so, remember, they're both translating. All of this is translating from jesus would have been speaking in aramaic to greek and so in aramaic maybe there were different words and the, then both these translators chose to just use the same greek word that means like club or stick or whatever the second option is that if you read over in matthew jesus tells them don't bring sandals and and what he Clearly, he doesn't mean go barefoot. What he means is don't bring extra sandals. It's clear from the context there. So the second option here is that maybe Jesus was telling them, don't bring an extra walking stick in case you lose this one or whatever, travel, keeping with the travel light theme, right? The third option is we remember that there were 12 disciples, right? And so um, we assume that Jesus was giving instructions to all 12 at the same time. And, you know, he may not have. Right. Remember, Peter was old. Peter was probably the oldest disciple. Right. So maybe when Peter was getting ready, Jesus told Peter, hey, dude, make sure you bring your walking stick. You're pretty old. Right. He was probably older than Jesus. And then later, he was talking to John, and John was the youngest disciple, scholars believe, and he was probably a teenager at this point. And he says to John, you don't need a walking stick, dude. You're like 17. And so in one instance, he did tell the disciples, right, bring a walking stick. And in another instance, he said, don't. And remember, Peter was the one who gave all of the information to John, uh, to Mark to write his gospel. So anyway, the point is, there are a couple of different options. You know, th- this is not a big theological uh, problem, right? It's not like in one, Jesus died for your sins, and in the other, Jesus didn't die for your sins, or something that like majorly shakes the faith. Um, There's probably just some sort of a semantic problem here in the way that these words were used, so I'm not going to trip up over it. Anyway, back to this, right? Uh, So as they're going, they're supposed to travel light, In verse 4, whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. So this was the near Eastern world in the first century. This was a hospitality culture. They didn't really have hotels the way that we have hotels. They didn't have Holiday Inn or Hilton or what, you know, they didn't have these things. And so when people traveled, generally what happened is they would just come into town and they would ask around and they would find somebody who would put them up and they would stay with that person. Um, And so, what Jesus is saying is when somebody offers you a place to stay, stay there. If somebody else comes along and has a better house, don't be rude, right? You're not there for your benefit. And this is super important, right? When we're out doing kingdom work, um, and a lot of you know pastors, I think, need to hear this. When you're out doing kingdom work and your job is not for your benefit, it's not for your comfort and your wealth, right? You're sacrificing so that you can do this mission. And that's what he's telling them. Be, be content um, without uh, you know, don't be a jerk, right, to these people that you're trying to proclaim this message to. And then verse 5, he keeps going, and with more instructions, and wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So, again, this gets uh, a little bit sticky here. Um, we need to set some context. So, we are told in one of the other Gospels specifically that Jesus told them, don't go to the Gentile towns. So Jesus is only sending them to these Jewish areas to talk to Jewish people. So he's sending Jewish people to talk to other Jewish people about the Messiah to the Jewish people, right? That they've been waiting for. Now, when he says, shake the dust off your feet when you leave town, um, that was a... Uh, custom that Jewish people in the first century had sort of adapted when they would go to a Gentile area. So when a Jewish person would go from like Capernaum or whatever, and they would travel to the Decapolis where there were a bunch of Gentile cities and they would sell their fish or their wheat or whatever it was, they would do some work. They would come home when they would leave the Gentile area, they would turn around and they would literally, they would shake the dust off of their feet because they didn't want to get any disgusting Gentile dust and germs in their house. Right. And so it was really a way to sort of, almost like you guys are not part of the people of God, and I don't want anything to do with you. Now, Jesus flips it. He says, when you leave a Jewish area who has rejected the Messiah, that they should know better, right? They should see me coming and they should know their scriptures. And if they reject me, do that Gentile thing to them. It was a way to say, you're not automatically a part of the people of God right that's not how this works there's no heart in it and you're rejecting the messiah and eventually then gentiles um will be grafted in and so is this a universal principle um right is uh should we be doing this now well the first thing is that this no it's not and this is not permanent um in acts um in Acts 1, eight right, he says you'll, be, you'll go to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? The idea is that even if they reject you now, in about a, in a two, two, two and a half years, whatever, um, these disciples, these apostles, are going to be back through this region preaching the same gospel. So even the rejection is not permanent. Um, there is one section in Acts where Paul does this. It's in Acts 13, and he's in Antioch of Pisidia. And the the Jewish folks there stir up persecution. And when he leaves, he shakes the dust off his feet. And so some people have said, see, this is a universal principle. The apostle Paul did it. But what did he do? He did it again to who? Other Jewish people who had rejected uh, the Messiah. And um, in that story, they rejected the Messiah because Paul talks about how the Gentiles will be sort of grafted in uh, to the people of God. So again, what he's doing the same thing, he's saying, you're not automatically a part of the people of God if you reject Jesus, right? And he was saying, you should know better. And so I'll say this, they the principle here there is no command in scripture to ever stop loving people or to write them off if they reject Jesus in the first go right love is what it's patient it's kind it's long suffering all those things um there's one great example of how this what this looks like even in um in uh the book of acts right so this was a jewish guy as well but um in corinth paul shows up in corinth he starts teaching in the synagogue and a bunch of people believe and there was this dude his name was sothenes all right, anybody looking for baby names, right, that's a great one, and this is in um, Acts 18, and he was opponent of Paul, he was the leader of the synagogue, and um, so Paul, he packs up from the synagogue when this guy starts, you know, fighting against him, and he moves next door, and he opens up a church next door to the synagogue, and, um, you know, it it doesn't go well, right, and Paul has to leave Corinth, there's a whole thing, right, so anyway, um, this guy sotsinies, though, when you open up the book of corinthians first corinthians which was written a long time later to this church it says i don't know it exactly but it's like paul i'm writing this book and guess who's with me soth right he's here with paul paul never gave up on this dude and so we should say this we should be careful of universalizing this command to like when somebody rejects the gospel to turn around and say well you had your chance right um, because the, their rejection may not be permanent how many of you accepted the entire gospel story the first time you heard it right it's just none of us probably um there was a long time where i basically knew the gospel and i thought it was baloney and so just like we wouldn't universalize the command not to take a fanny pack with you on a missions trip or something right we shouldn't universalize this command to shake off the dust from our feet But at the same time, we should learn from this that when we're calling people to repent the way John the Baptist did, the way Jesus did, when we're talking about the kingdom of God and we're explaining the gospel story with people, it's a serious business, right? Eternal life and death is on the line. Too much of how we talk about our faith with other people makes it seem like it's not that big a deal. Like we're the Costco lady handing out samples. You know, I don't really care if you take one or if you don't, right? You know, I guess if you buy these egg rolls, that's great for me, but I mean, it's really not a big deal, right? Um, But the gospel is way more serious, right? We should be less like the Costco lady and we should be more like, I don't know, Fauci, right? Dr. Fauci trying to convince people to take the, um, not the virus, take the vaccine, Um, the COVID vaccine, right? When you see him on TV, he's very serious about it. And he's trying to explain to people what will happen if they don't take this vaccine, right? People should see in our eyes that we love them and that this gospel call is very, very serious. All right, back to the text. Um, Verse six, let's keep going. So um, they're called to go out. So what do they do? They actually do it. They departed and went through the villages. And this is the key, right? Preaching the, not the kingdom, but preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Right? So I love it. Jesus sends them out. They go two by two. Imagine how exhilarating this was for the uh, disciples, right? They're out there and they're healing people and they're they're proclaiming the gospel and they're casting out demons and they're doing all of the stuff that Jesus did. Imagine the first time that one of these guys walked up to somebody with leprosy and says, in the name of Jesus, be healed. And then all of a sudden the guy's skin is clean and pure and back to how it's supposed to be. Imagine how that felt for these disciples and how that um how that grew their faith. But as we look at this story and we look at them going around casting out demons and healing, we come to this question, right? Are is this what we're supposed to be doing as a church today? Are we supposed to have a healing ministry, that sort of things? Now, a lot of folks will look at this sermon or this text uh, or something like this text. Anytime there's a healing text, and answer do a whole sermon based off of this this question. Should we be healing today? this is not going to be the main point of the sermon. I just want to touch on this briefly. Um, When we think of healing, and we've talked about this a little bit, you know, I showed that Benny Hinn clip at one point, we think of guys like that, right? Some of these crackpot TV preachers who are fake healing or like the Steve Martin character in that movie from the 90s or 80s or whatever. Um, But basically, let's talk about this. Do Christians today have the authority and the power to heal people? There's two positions. The first group, believes that healing and miracles don't really happen today and that they were sort of like a fire starter just to get the church going, right? So, um, you know, I know how to build a fire, but it's a lot easier to build a fire when you pour um, lighter fluid on the campfire and then you light the whole thing, right? And so a lot of people will say um, that the, the, the church getting started, it needed some lighter fluid and these miracles were the lighter fluid, but you don't keep pouring lighter fluid on once the fire is already going. The second group, and this is the group I'm in, that say, sure, miracles do happen today. Um, I can give you one story, one example, is I knew a guy at my old church who had, um, I think it was liver cancer, when I was a young, young kid. Um, You know, I was in elementary school, and the doctors basically told him, like, you have a month maybe to live, and some guys at church went over and prayed for him, and um, he kind of described this really spiritual experience during the prayer time. And the next day he went in for his scans and the cancer from his body was completely gone. And he's one of maybe one or two people in the history of the world that has been documented as having survived this level of cancer. And the doctors still never were able to explain what happened to this cancer. I mean, it literally was spreading through his whole body and he was gonna die. And then all of a sudden they couldn't find one single trace of this cancer. Now, that's one miracle that I, I 100% believe. Um, but I've been a Christian for, I don't know, 20-something years now, and I'm, you know, I've been around church for, uh, you know what am I, 37? We figured that out last night on the Zoom call. I'm filming this Thursday. Last night on the Zoom call, we did the math and figured out I'm 37 when I forgot how old I was. But I've been around church for 37 years, and that's basically the miracle that I can point to and say I'm 100% sure that that happened, right? When we look at the New Testament, um, I do believe there were miracles concentrated as a fire starter to get... The gospel going and that they continued to happen, especially as the gospel is spreading in the book of Acts. But if you look at the book of Acts, there's less than 20 miracles recorded over a period of about 30 years. Okay, this is not recorded that there were just constant every Sunday healing ministries, right? They didn't have tent meetings and miracle nights and all of that stuff. So here's the idea Should we be praying for miracles? Yeah, we should always pray for people to be healed. Um, And I love this saying we should always pray for people to be healed because when we do, sometimes they are. And when we don't, nobody is. Right. And so, um, right under this heading, the idea is like talking about miracles. We're not performing miracles like Peter and Paul. Um, right. I I don't have that confidence and power. I don't know. I've never walked up to somebody and said, be healed. But I've, you know, I do have one example from my life of somebody who I didn't do it, but somebody who was healed. Miracles do happen and we pray for people to be healed, but Just because we can't do the miracle part of this doesn't mean we can't do other sort of normal things to alleviate suffering and things like injustice. And so at the very least, churches need to focus on that, proclaiming the gospel and alleviating suffering and injustice, sometimes through miracles and a lot of times through just the regular things that we do as followers of Jesus to help out our neighbors and our loved ones and our friends, right? Um Philip Reichkin, writing about this, said this: We are also called to heal, in other words, uh, to minister to people's material as well as spiritual needs at certain times and in some places, this ministry may be miraculous, especially when the gospel first penetrates a culture in order to confirm the truth of his word, God certainly can and sometimes may heal people in miraculous ways, but whenever and wherever the church gets established, the church itself becomes the confirmation of the gospel. Uh, how did people know that the apostles were telling the truth about God's kingdom, in part because the miracles proved it? How do people, How will people know that we're telling the truth about salvation, especially when they can't see Jesus in person? People uh, do not know this by our miracles ordinarily. I mean, they do sometimes, right? But as a community of God's people, we confirm the truth by our love and our suffering and the sacrificial way that we care for people's needs. right. And I love that. So we can look at this and we can definitely take away that our church should be loving and we should be caring for people's physical needs as well as their spiritual needs. And sometimes that'll be miraculous, but most of the time it won't be. All right, let's keep going now. So they they go out on this preaching mission and they're healing people and they're proclaiming the gospel and they're casting out demons. And then what happens? Word spreads, right? And so verse seven, look what happens. Now, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, but some by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about, who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So now we have um, Herod. This is the son of Herod the great. We've already read about him a little and we've talked about how he stole his brother's wife. And there was a whole thing, right? And um, Herod Uh, heard everything that was happening. So these disciples now are making an impact in the area where Herod um, is in charge, right? Where his government is. And so all of a sudden, we've got these six teams of two traveling around doing all the stuff that Jesus was doing, and it's making this massive impact. And so people now are trying to figure out who is this Jesus, right? Who are these, his disciples, right? Who is this leader? And so one option is they say, well, uh, maybe it's uh, John raised from the dead. Because Herod had John executed, right? It even says, you know, John, I beheaded. Um, the, the quick version of this story, and I, I didn't look it up, but I think we already sort of told this story in the book of Luke. But basically what happened was Herod married his sister-in-law. John called him out for this sinful behavior. And so Herod's wife didn't like that. And so... They had John arrested and put in jail. It seemed like Herod kind of liked John. You know, he was a little bit interested. He didn't really know what to think. Um, And then one day he gets drunk and has a party with his friends. And his stepdaughter comes in and does a strip tease for all of his drunk moron buddies. And he's so, like, uh, happy with how it's going, right, that he says to his stepdaughter, um, this is very Woody Allen of him, right, he says to his stepdaughter, um, I'll give you anything you want up to half the kingdom so she goes back and says to mom what what should i ask for and the mom says ask him to kill john the baptist so they do they behead john the baptist and they bring his head on a platter and they give it to the girl who gives it to the mom and that's how john the baptist died right the great prophet of the lord this is how his end for calling out this sinful leader um, the way that god wanted him to calling him to repentance he ends up being executed and so some people were saying, well, maybe Jesus is John the Baptist to come back from the dead. Um, other people were saying, well, maybe he's um, Elijah raised from the dead, right? The great prophet Elijah who took up, you know, at the end of first Kings right there, who took, who, who took off into the, into the sky and the chariot of fire and all that stuff. Other people say, well, maybe some other prophet who's risen, we're actually going to kind of leave those options and talk about why they believed that stuff. Cause we're going to get back to that in, you know, just a couple of weeks, um, But it says at the end here that Herod sought to see Jesus. Now, this is not really an honest seeker. We know later on that, and from other parts of the gospels, when it says Herod, he just wanted to see Jesus's miracles. He was looking for some sort of a show and he heard there was this great traveling circus and he wanted to see the circus, right? Um, And eventually he does get to see Jesus. Uh, And Jesus, uh, when Herod's in Jerusalem at at, um, Passover, um, when Jesus is arrested and executed, Pilate finds out Herod's there and he sends Jesus to Herod and says, Look, you deal with him. And Herod, you know, they mess around with Jesus a little bit and Jesus refuses to do any miracles, doesn't even talk to him. So he sends him back. He says, Look, I don't think this guy did anything, you know. Um, but, you know, at one point he could have saved Jesus' life. He didn't do it. He wasn't an honest, you know, he wasn't really an honest seeker. There's, you know, if we talk about the parable of the soils, right, you know, which soil was Herod? I mean, I don't know. He's probably the one where. You know the, um, you know the seed hits the hard path and never really grows, or you know maybe it just grows but shallow roots, you know that sort of thing. But he's not like the honest, actual um, follower of Jesus. Now that's our text, right? We have Herod seeking, and we have these guys sent out on this mission. Now let's let's put this into perspective of the entire gospel story. The human race, the human, you know, as people, we are. Uh, mankind, we're fallen and we're lost. And that's what we learn in the book of Genesis as we reject God in Genesis 3. And sure, humanity, we have some bright spots, don't we? When you look around human history, there's thanks to God's common grace, there's some great stuff, right? We have science, and I've talked about this before, but I've seen a few things about how miraculous, I mean, I wouldn't say miraculous, but you know what I mean, not actually miraculous, but um, how amazing, let's say that it was, that they did these, um, that they got these vaccinations done in under a year. Right. We have technology that we've created that's absolutely mind-boggling. Um, we have a lot of cool nonprofits around the world that are um, doing really cool stuff. Like I have an uncle who's not a believer who teaches about sustainable farming. And there's guys like Matt Damon and water.org who helps with sanitation and water needs in places like Africa and Southeast Asia. Right? There's a lot of cool stuff like that. Um, you know, We have a human race. We've invented baseball, which is about the greatest thing that we've ever come up with. Um, right? I, do you guys like my new Giants hat? Here, it's got Will Clark on it. You see that, Will Clark? If you don't know who Will Clark is, that's because you're probably an idiot. Um, anyway, we've done great things like baseball and uh, music and art, right? And uh, Van Gogh painting and um, you know Kayla's guy who makes those baby twirly things that go in cribs, but for adults, um, right? We've got all this amazing art. We've got all this stuff. But here's the thing: as the human race. As we've done all this really cool stuff, we have completely missed the main target. We've missed the main thing that we should be focusing on, and that's reunion with God, right? Take back to baseball, right? Take baseball; it's baseball season. I'm gonna talk about the Giants a lot, um, who are surprisingly not as terrible as they're supposed to be. Um, imagine that a team has a really great-looking uniforms, right, like the Giants, um, or you know, and then you go to the stadium, and the food is amazing, and you watch the team, and they do a lot of things really well, right? As they play baseball, they throw hard. This guy's throwing 105 mile an hour fastballs, and you know every time they hit the ball, it's it's hit really hard, and they're the fastest guys out there. And you know you look at all these things, you say this is a great baseball team. But what would you think if they never won games, right? What if they were an awful team, right? Are they successful as a baseball team because the uniforms look good and because they can hit the ball really hard and throw it really hard? No, they're not, right? That's humanity. We have a lot of bright spots. The hot dogs at the stadium are amazing, right? Crazy crab sandwiches are great. We've got great looking uniforms, right? We've done a lot of things good. We can throw the ball really hard, but we still don't win baseball games. We've missed the main idea, right? We were, uh, right? That's the gospel flow, right? We were created to be in community with God, the Trinity, and we will never really be satisfied until we are reunited with the creator that we've rejected in Genesis chapter three. Now, um, our, uh, friends who may be watching and are not followers of Jesus, uh, they might be listening to me say that and say, this is the objection, right? Well, that's baloney, right? I'm not lost. I'm fine. Um, A.W. Tozer, who was a theologian a while ago, and wrote a bunch of really fantastic books. He said this, um, the man who does not know where he is, is lost. Uh, the man who does not know why he was born is worse than lost. The man who cannot find an object worthy of his true devotion is lost utterly. And by this description, the human race is lost and it is part of our lost, lostness that we do not know how lost we are. So if, the what the the biblical story says is that our fallen condition is so bad that we think we're not even sick right it's like um, when somebody's mentally ill so mentally ill uh, to the point that they don't want to take their medicine because they don't believe that they're mentally ill that's kind of how we are as the human race right we're so lost that we don't even know that we're lost we don't even want to admit it and that's part of the pride that that is in our souls. Our pride has this amazing ability to just deny that anything's wrong. But deep, 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 deep down, I think we all know. And that's why the world is so religious, right? That's why there's the religious nature of mankind, right? You don't think you're lost, then you have to figure out a, an explanation for the religious nature of mankind. Where does this come from? Um, remember, for years, people have sang, have been saying, and I was just reading something in the New York Times that was kind of all along this narrative that says... Um, people are becoming more and more secular and becoming less and less religious. And uh, that eventually what's going to happen is that secularism is just going to win out and religion is going to fade away as we become more and more advanced. Well, the problem with that is that's not really true. The American sociologist, there's a guy, his name is Rodney Stark. And um, he's, I think he's a believer, but anyway, he, um, he wrote a book called The Triumph of Faith. And then I think he wrote another book called Why God? I haven't read that one. But in the book, The Triumph of Faith, he addresses this issue. And he says, look, yeah, there's this narrative out there that basically says that religion is, you know, like I said, is on the decline and secularism is on the upswing. And that one day secularism will just completely replace religion. And the, the idea is almost, it's so arrogant that only intel, um, only intelligent people, right, uh, really are secular, right? Intelligent people are are secular and the dummies are religious. And the more education we give, the more secular people there will be, and the more of these religious dummies will sort of fade away. And that we're heading toward this secular utopia, kind of like what Star Trek hopes to happen, right? Where religion pretty much has been eliminated. And so in this book... Um, The Triumph of Faith, Rodney Stark sort of really tries to answer that question, not looking at any one particular religion, but just religion in general. And he goes on to test this narrative and to see if it's true. And the answer that he comes up with is overwhelmingly, that's a false narrative. It's not true. Religion is not on the decline. In fact, the opposite is true. Religion, again, not just one religion, but the religious instinct is growing rapidly and uh, secularism is actually declining. And what he, here's what he says in the introduction to this book, um, as he lays out his thesis before he spends the entire book trying to make the case and to prove it. He says, the world is more religious than it's ever been. Around the globe, four out of five people claim to be um, belong to an organized faith, and many of the rest, so four out of five are organized, go to part of an organized faith. and then four out of the um, sorry and then many of the rest say they attend worship services. So even that one out of five, there's a whole bunch of those guys that say, "Oh yeah, I'm not part of a religion but then you ask him, he goes on to explain this. Do you believe in angels? Oh, of course I believe in angels. And do you believe there is some sort of a God? Yeah, of course I believe there's some sort of a God. Or in China, they attend different temples, but are you part of a religious faith? Oh, no, no, no. I'm not religious at all, but you know, I still pray to these gods and ancestors and do this stuff. And okay. So what, right? People are religious. Um, uh, and I think we're religious because we know that we've missed the mark and we're trying to figure it out. Right? We're trying to win baseball games. We're trying to get to the end. We just don't know how. So here's the next objection then. Well, what makes the Christian faith the right one? Right? There's a bunch of different faiths. There's Islam. There's Buddhism. You know, there's all these different faiths. There's Mormonism. Like what makes you think that, that, um, you know, that your faith is right? Isn't that super arrogant? What sets it apart? Well, here's the thing. Look at the problem. Right? Sin has, has broken us so bad that we don't have a chance to reach God on our own. And so what I'm saying is I think a lot of religions are people grasping uh, at God, trying to reach him on their own, but they're not successful. And so what we don't need is not a staircase that we can climb, a set of morals that we can uh, adhere to so that we can be good enough to reach God, because there's nothing that's going to bridge that gap from our end. What we need is for God to reach down to us. What we need is for God to come down to our level because we're never going to be able to reach him on our own. And that's exactly what the gospel says Jesus Christ has done. God has come down to us. He's bridged the gap. He went on a mission to seek and to save the lost. And the Christian faith is the only faith that says that, that you are too sick to save yourself. You are too broken to put yourself back together right? You are dead in your trespasses and sins. It says in Ephesians, dead, right? You can't bring yourself back to life, but through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, through, through the death and resurrection of King Jesus, right? You can be put back together. You can be put right with God, Every other religion is built on this sort of um, this deep-seated longing for God. And every other faith basically presents a different way for you to climb that ladder and to get to God. And Christianity comes along and says, you can't climb the ladder. And so God, he he came down the ladder. He came down to you, right? You're not going to be able to to get things right unless you let him do it for you, right? But here's the other amazing part of the story is that you're not just spiritually healed, and then left to just do whatever you want until you're dead. Right? That's not how it works. Jesus spiritually heals people and he 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 justifies them is the word that's used in the New Testament, right? His people and then he sends them out with the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Right? The same way that he came to earth for this mission, then he sends his people on a mission. We get to emulate him, we get to copy him. Um, where we get to be little versions of Jesus, right? That's what Christian means, little Christs. Um, And what he did on a big scale and leaving heaven and coming on this mission of salvation, we get to do on a little scale. And it started in church history with the big A apostles who started and founded the church and they wrote the New Testament and they did all of these amazing things. But that mission, that same mission that Jesus gave to these guys continues now with the little A apostles, which is the rest of us. We are called to go out on a mission with this good news of the King. And we're, we're called to offer salvation to the lost, to, to seek them out and to, to introduce them to Jesus Right? We are part of the chain that started at this very moment when Jesus sent out these 12 disciples right? or, you know, these 12 apostles. And so let's apply this. Let's hammer this home and just for three different groups of people. So if you're the kind of person who's not a follower of Jesus and you're looking into the Christian faith, like I always say in sermons, we're, look, we're glad you're listening. We're glad you're here. Um, we we really want to encourage you to think deeply about these things. Um the, and I'll say this to you, the mission of these guys was to spread the gospel of the kingdom and to tell people who Jesus really is. And the most important thing that you will ever do in your life is to figure this out. And to answer this question that Luke in this book wants you to answer, who is this guy, right? Who is this man? Who is Jesus? Not what's all this tradition and who is he in the gospels? And how do you do that? Right? Well, how do you figure that out? How do you figure out who Jesus is? Well, that's why he sent the rest of us on this mission. We are here as a church to help you process and think about your faith. And I'll personally, all as a pastor, I'll apologize on behalf of um, you know Jesus and his followers, right? Um, on our group, because a lot of times we've been terrible at this, and we have not. You know, you may have had encounters with followers of Jesus where you were uncomfortable, and this church or these people were not, uh, they didn't create a safe space for you to think about faith and to process faith and to look into the things of faith. And the sad thing is that happens way too much. Too many Christians are like, it's us versus them, right? And I'm sorry that that's the way that it's played out and people have acted like that. But here at The Porch, right, we don't want to do that. We want to help you. There's a lot of great churches in San Francisco want to help you process faith, right? And so Jesus has deputized his people to love and to serve you and to help alleviate your needs and to give you a safe space to figure this stuff out. And so if that's you, I want you to reach out. I'd take you to coffee. I'd love to get to know you, whatever. Um, we want to hear your story and we want you to really be, you know, free to think about these things. The second group then is for the newish believers, right? So if you're a new believer, you came to faith, you're all excited, but here's the next step, right? It's not just about you, right? It comes with this apprenticeship that leads to apostleship, little a apostleship. You learn and then you go and you, you can't learn and then sit and just, oh, this theological thing, I'm just going to learn about this some more. And look, if that's what happens to you, you're not learning the right things right? If you're just going to take in all this knowledge about the gospel and keep it to yourself, that means you're not learning the real gospel because the real gospel always tells you to get up and go, right? Now, for the seasoned believer, the person who's been a believer for a while and you're part of the porch, whatever, um, Jesus, this is what I'll say to you guys, Jesus always equips the ones that he sends out, Right? His little A apostles don't go out without training. Jesus is an excellent baseball manager. He gave the 12 both power and authority to do these things. And he does the same thing with us. I'll give you the two verses, right? The authority that he gives us comes from the Great Commission, where we are officially deputized into the kingdom to be his um, messengers, his little A apostles. He came to them and said, this is Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Son and of the holy spirit teaching them to observe all that i have commanded you and behold i am with you to the end of the age so you now as a follower of king jesus you can be bold in sharing the gospel for this reason jesus has commanded you to do it right you're a deputy you have the badge you're supposed to be doing this but again he doesn't just give authority he gives power and authority right he sends us out with the power to succeed, and that's what we see at, at Pentecost. Jesus talked about this in Acts one. You will receive specifically power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And this is the verse I talked about earlier in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Right. So we're at the ends of the earth right now. Phase of Acts one eight. Right. If you're in Jerusalem in 30-something AD, thinking about San Francisco in 2021 is literally the ends of the earth. And so we're here and Jesus says that this power, this Holy Spirit that I am giving you, that that the Spirit coming upon you to empower you to fulfill this mission will last until we reach the ends of the earth. So even now, we're way out here. We're way out in the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit's still working, right? He's still doing what he does through us. And so let me leave you with this thought, right? Jesus has deputized you with power and authority to, to take the gospel to those who need to hear about King Jesus. Is that really important to you? Is that the driving force? Um, is that the driving force in your life? I'll tell you about just one quick example, and then we'll be done, of a guy who I believe kind of had this as his driving force. His name was David Brainerd, and he was a missionary in the 1700s to a Native American tribe in... Um, Uh, New Jersey, I think it was, Um, you know, back when the colonies were, you know, still British and all that stuff. And um, he was an acquaintance of Jonathan Edwards and um, Jonathan Edwards published his diary. So that's how we know a lot about David Brainerd is the diary of David Brainerd. And uh, he had a rough life and he died very young. And um, actually, I think he died at Jonathan Edwards, the theologian's house, the pastor theologian. Now, this is what he said. He said, I cared not uh, where or how I lived or what hardships I went through, so that I could not but gain souls for Christ. While I was asleep, I dreamed of these things. And when I woke, when I awoke, the first thing I thought of was this great work, right? That's a deputy who really takes this call of God seriously his entire life. I don't care if I'm sick. I don't care if I'm poor. I don't care if I have nowhere to sleep. When I, go, when I do fall asleep, I dream about the gospel and the mission of the gospel. And when I wake up, it's the first thing I think about right? Is that us? Are we marked by that? If it's not, we need to press in more uh, and find out who King Jesus is and let him change us into the kind of people who fall asleep dreaming uh, about our neighbors coming to faith. Imagine if our church was full of people like that, how awesome it would be uh, in this corner of San Francisco, right? Would we make an impact the way that King Herod in our area would look around, um, you know, who's a King Herod of our area? Maybe Aaron Peskin looks around and says, man, what is this church doing? Who are these guys? That's the kind of impact I want us to have as a church. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, we thank you that you um, have given us power through the Holy Spirit to do what we could never do, which is call people to repentance and succeed. We thank you that you've given us the authority to do what we have no business doing, which is telling people about you and about your kingdom. You know, we thank you we've been deputized, uh, you know, as ambassadors for you. We admit, Lord, we ask for your forgiveness when we fail in our call and our mission. And we know that we're, you know, we're not great at it. And the only success we have comes because you are, uh, you're better than we are. And so, you know, it's, it's, uh, I don't know. A lot of times, Lord, I feel like the, uh, you know the 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 backup football player on the team that wins the super bowl and i just get to sit there and i get to watch you work and it's just it's fun to be on the team you you're so amazing and um and how you work and how much you love us so we ask for just we ask for success lord as we go out um you know i don't know 2 by 2 into our neighborhood and as we try to love our neighbors and alleviate suffering and proclaim the gospel and I, you know, I just, like I always say, Lord, I want to get to heaven and I want there to be a ton of people there from our neighborhood and from San Francisco. And the only way that's going to happen, Lord, is if you, uh, you do that work through your Holy spirit. We're just, we're glad to be on the team. We thank you. We love you so much. Amen.